Miracy. Organizations are not machines. They're not. And we have a machine paradigm for the way organizations run based out of the industrial revolution that no longer works. Organizations are collections of people, individuals, and they're organic. The dynamics change all the time. As a leader, you must lead people. You must lead human beings. Human beings are led by other human beings, not by machines. I'm Sharon Richmond. Welcome to To Lead is Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact, clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by blending the art and science of leading with intention. I talk with top business leaders who exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the influence they have comes with an equal measure of responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, they prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy work environment for their employees. We learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. My guest today is Jeff Griffiths. Jeff is co-founder of Workforce Strategies International, where he calls himself the chief competency geek. Their organization specializes in helping larger industrial companies excel through what they describe as building a talent-first organization. I wanted to have Jeff join us today because sometimes when we talk about leading in a very people-centered way, listeners might think that you have to be one of those touchy-feely types, over-focused on what it is that makes people feel happy at work. Jeff is anything but touchy-feely, and at the same time, he has learned some very similar lessons that have worked for him in both military and heavy industrial environments. I'm really eager to explore the twists and turns of his journey and highlight for you what he's learned about leading in those different kinds of environments. As you listen to our conversation, you'll hear Jeff's great use of metaphors. Like you'll hear him describing how he sees leading people as very much like leading a hockey team and why it is that leaders can't micromanage such teams. He'll also apply his leadership approaches to how he works with his executive colleagues and how he learned the hard way not to assume positional power will be enough to guide an organization successfully. Jeff also talks to us about how much he's learned by practicing taking others' perspectives, seeing the work through their eyes, and being curious about how they arrive at their perspectives. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. It's good to be here, and it's good to spend some time with you again. Thank you. So let's start, Jeff, by you telling our listeners a little bit about the company and about your role there. Well, Workforce Strategies, it's an amalgamation of three separate consulting firms. We banded together early in 2019. There's three different founders. We were all operating more or less in the same space. We're all competency geeks. And so we put together because we thought we would offer a broader range of services with a greater level of expertise and have all the potential to provide more impact and value for our customers if we work together instead of trying to beat each other up in the marketplace. So we created Workforce Strategies International out of that in 2019. And we've been making a pivot. We were doing a lot of industrial association type work at a high level and, and some government funded stuff. We were ready to make a big pivot towards direct corporate work and mostly 90% direct corporate work. And that pivot was going to happen right around the time of our first anniversary. 
which was February of 2020. And we all know what happened in March of 2020, right? So it's been an interesting uh, couple of three years, right? Now, you know, COVID's been renewed for, you know, season four now, I think. And so, you know, but we're working on a through way through. And what we're finding is, you know, the, the things that we are trying to do are actually having even more traction now as firms are trying to find a better way and a more human way, particularly when they're, we're dealing with, uh, you know, talent shortages of becoming an attractive place for people to live out their careers. That's great. Thank you. Why don't we start out with, tell us a little bit about your leadership journey. I'd love you to start by describing yourself as a leader today. Do you have an approach or principles that that you think you base your leadership on? I think it evolves over time. My approach to leadership now is I try and be very human-centered. The purpose of leadership is to allow people to be the best that they can be. It's not about you, it's about them. And uh, I mean, and that traces all the way back to my early days when I started my career as an officer in the military. And the generals can figure out whatever they want to figure out, right? But until somebody at the front line actually gets up out of their trench and does something about it, it doesn't really matter what the plan is, right? And the most important people are the ones that are actually on the front line delivering value. And so we try through our own business, through the way I I interact with other people, is to always try and find ways that they can be better and serve them. And that's what leadership is really all about. It's unlocking potential and allowing people to surprise you and them in what they're capable of doing. That's an interesting dynamic. (laughs) How do you do it with a bunch of peers? Running a three-headed monster, because I'm the managing director of the company, a three-headed monster is an interesting dynamic because we're equal partners, equal shares in the business, but we still have to drive things forward. And I guess the, one of the lessons in that is it's important to not always be right. In fact, it's probably just as important to often be wrong or not even have a clue and rely on the unique expertise that other people around you have. So tell me a little bit more about not always being right. We try and go into work every day with the mindset that we don't know everything. I've got someone working for me now. We're also big on opportunities for youth, and particularly kids coming out of university have a real hard time getting jobs that match with the things that they've learned. So we've connected with a number of different programs locally to provide work experience for, you know, as part of their academic programs. And through that process last year, somebody jumped out at us and said, hey, we should, you know, can I do this? And we said, well, we hadn't really thought about that, but sure, why not? So I hired her to, to come and do some work for us on a part-time basis. And the whole idea is you went to school for four years. You've got a brain the size of a small planet. You know things that I don't know because I'm the wrong generation to know that. So particularly talking about digital marketing and things like that. I expect you to tell me what I need to do, not the other way around, right? There are things that I can teach you, but there are lots of things that you can teach me. So how do we create an environment that allows that to happen and takes the hierarchy out of the organization so that we can all learn together and become better together? And the analogy that I've always used, and again, because I'm a Canadian, right? It's very much like running a hockey team, right? You cannot micromanage a hockey game. You've got to just sort of drop the puck and let the players figure it out. And no one knows exactly what they're going to be doing in a small business or on a hockey team. The only person who's really sure where they're going to be the whole day is the goaltender, right? So everybody else is constantly moving around. It's constantly shifting. Who's in charge? It's whoever's got the puck, which is constantly shifting. And so there's a need for a level of trust in other people's capabilities. There's a need to understand what other people's capabilities and their weaknesses are and fill in and compensate 
for each other. That's the whole idea of a team, right? And so when you bring that to work every day and you say, well, I'm an idiot, I don't know, but that's okay because someone here does. And if none of us know, that's okay because we'll figure it out because we're smart people. And for me, that's the essence of driving an innovative and future-proof organization. It's a really fun place to work once you get over the vulnerability of, you know, well, I might actually be wrong someday. So tell us more about this. I imagine, listening to you, you sound like a very reasonable, mature adult. I can't imagine that you always had this sage of a perspective about building an organization. So as you reflect over your leadership journey, maybe there were stages or, I don't know, describe for us what that arc has been like for you. Well, I mean, I go back to, you know, the beginning, right? I was born at a very early age. I went through the Canadian military college system, so our version of West Point, for what it matters, right? So you're taught a very hierarchical, uh, top-down approach, very autocratic approach to leadership. And I remember, because we had guest speakers, and there was a particular speaker who came in during, you know, second or third year or whatever, uh, and he was the professor of leadership studies at Sandhurst, the Royal Military Academy in, at Sandhurst, the Army Academy in the UK. And he had been a captain in the, uh, in the British Army. And he was talking about this approach to leadership, which was different than what we were doing. And he, we all got a copy of his book, which we never read because we were too busy, right? And off we went about our business. Eventually, I graduated, I got commissioned, and now I'm out there in the field. I'm trying to do my job. And things aren't working quite the way that they told me they were going to work in the military school, right? Because human beings are human beings. And, and so just to give us a little color, like what did you think was going to happen and what was really happening? Well, I mean, when you're trained in that kind of an environment, again, it's very hierarchical. People who are, you know, more, higher ranks mean smarter people who, and, and you do what they tell you to do. You know, and so when I got out into the field and I was in the Canadian Air Force and we were working with NORAD, North American Air Defense Command. So I'm a brand new, wet behind the ears, young lieutenant. Effectively, I'm in charge, right? And I was paired up with an old technician who, you know, old enough to be my dad, probably, who had forgotten more about doing this than I would ever learn. And his job was to prevent me from getting people killed, <laughs> right? A good job, something most people would think was worthy right. of doing. Right. And he was a junior NCO and I'm an officer. So I'm in charge, but if I was smart, I would ask Eddie what he thought I should be doing right now because he'd seen it, done it, and he'd been there. And so that was a different, you know, okay, wait a minute, but Eddie's only a corporal and I'm a lieutenant. I should be in charge here. And effectively, I, I was in charge. I, what I was was responsible for what happened. But if I was smart, I'd lean on the expertise that was all around me, right? Because there were lots of people around me who were a lot smarter than I was. And so that's the nucleus of it. And I was having troubles working through trying to figure out how to do it. And as I was cleaning out my basement one weekend, I came across that book by a guy named John Adair. And I sat down and I started reading it. And there was this three circles leadership model. So, you know, achieve the task, build and maintain the team, develop the individual. And some examples of how to apply that. And it said, oh, that can't work. It's too damn simple. But, you know, I went to work on Monday and I decided, and I saw, I'll try it. And it started working. And so I kept doing it. And the whole idea of that is achieve the task is a job, right? I mean, that's why you're there. That's why the organization exists, is to serve a customer, deliver a product, whatever. Build and maintain the team and develop the individual is the primary role of leadership. Is that the more time you spend on that and enhancing the bottom of those three circles, the less time you have to worry about what's going to actually happen in terms of achieving the task, because that's their job. And that started that shift for me. 
as, well, no, my job is not to tell them what to do. My job is to make it so that they can do what they already know how to do and give them opportunities to learn how to do even more stuff. So anyway, so I was the deputy commander of a mobile radar squadron, and we were deployed onto the southern U.S. border. And we were doing a covert counter-narcotics surveillance mission along the U.S. border. And I went down there, brought everything we owned because we're Canadians and we didn't have a whole lot of stuff and 12 people, right? And after we got the organized, after we got things set up, we never had more than three people actually out there doing things at any given time. Two and a half months later, they finally replaced us with an American unit who brought 75 people to do the job that we'd been doing with 12. And that, for me, I think, is when it finally struck me, like, how the hell were we able to do so much, so well, for so long, with so little? And it was, again, we, I, I mentioned the hockey team analogy, right? We had a squadron hockey team, you know, and we played well together. And we punched above our weight, playing against much bigger units with many more people to select the team from. And we got used to this idea of sharing responsibility and sharing leadership and handing the puck around and taking advantage of everybody's skills, not just what was in their job description, but all the other stuff that they could do and finding ways to give them opportunities to do that and grow. We were able to do amazing things that technically weren't possible. The company that made the radar said it took a six-man crew 24 hours to put it online under ideal conditions. I did it with two technicians at 120 degree heat in four and a half hours. How is that possible? Well, it's not, except we did. Except right? it was. And so yeah. what made the difference what it, when you look back? Because we could draw on whole person competency and trust people to use all of their skills, go beyond what your job description is. So we had people who liked fixing cars. We didn't have anybody to fix our generators, but guess what? An engine's an engine. I'm not going to stop you because of your job description. Like, go for it. Surprise me. And, you know, we had lots of that kind of opportunity, mostly at first, at least, because, you know, out of necessity, because we didn't have enough resources of any kind. Eventually, we said, well, this is actually a smart idea. Let's start. Let's continue to do it. Right. And one of the things that I learned in the military was because you have so much turnover every year, people post out, new people post in. And as an officer, the first thing you do is you sit down with everybody's personnel files who's just come in and you're looking at where, you know, because everybody's the sum total of everything they've ever done. Looking at that, getting a picture of that, how can I best use that new part in this thing that I have to run so that it gives them an opportunity to learn and grow because you're always trying to prepare someone for the next job. But also, I've got a job that has to get done. How do we integrate this? How do we blend this? And so it's part and parcel. And the military is usually pretty good at it, is understanding how to get the most out of people. But then we started turning it into a programmed activity to actually you know, find out all of the things that people could do. And what I found is if you operate that way as a leader, and make a conscious effort to, you know, find out all of the cool stuff that people can do full, you know, what I, I refer to as take advantage of the latent skill in your organization. And we create an environment where everybody gets to work like a dog, right? And people look at me and they kind of go, what do you mean work like a dog? And I just, well, if you ever seen a dog work, totally focused, using all of their skills, doing work that they were born to do. And the best reward is they get to come in tomorrow and do it again, right? Wouldn't the world be a better place if we all got to work like a dog? Right? And so, 
you know. And so we went through conscious effort to create an environment where everybody got to work like a dog. And I say it was the hardest job I ever had. You know, I was on that squadron for four years. It was the most rewarding, fun, exhausting job I have ever had. And, you know, it was a long time ago. And you can hear how excited and animated I'm getting about it. It was brilliant. I loved it. And I'm trying to apply that same stuff since I got out of the military and finding out that the corporate world does not work that way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's particularly interesting to me because you highlighted a lesson that a lot of entrepreneurs don't even realize they're going to, they know they're going to face it, but they don't know they're going to learn from it. And that is limited resources force us to be more creative about how to get things done. So you didn't have quite enough of the resources that you thought you needed, but what you learned instead is that the resources you had were a whole lot richer than you might have anticipated. So what did you have to change in the way that you were leading your team in order to move from that like military, more hierarchical into this, I don't know if it's fair to call it humanistic? I would call it humanistic. I mean, I believe that organizations should run like an immune system. So the key to success in an organization is excellent people developing excellent processes, not executing excellent processes, because the processes only work until the situation changes, right? And so we built a system in the military and and now moving forward to try and create an environment where people can excel. You start by, as a leader, I think, admitting that you don't have the answers creating an environment where people are allowed to fail and learn, right? Like it was John Maxwell who wrote the book, right? Some days you win, some days you learn, (laughs) But that's absolutely true. And, And so how do you create an environment where that sort of constant learning and growth is encouraged? It starts with leadership saying, I don't have the answer. Let's find out and let's iterate our way to a solution and create an environment where you'll never get in trouble by trying something and failing. Like better to learn trying something that's not going to blow the world up than wait until later when it really matters, right? We can recover from almost anything, create processes around the absolute got-tos for safety and whatever. And everything else is open to a certain amount of interpretation and accept that degree of variability because that's what releases human potential. And there aren't all that many hills to die for in an organization. Those are the ones that are, are the ones you need hard and fast process for. And most work that we see doesn't require someone to have, you know, like there are so many variables in work these days. You can't have, you know, an if then, if then, if then, if then matrix to produce a process. You have to have people with cognitive skills who can interpret. And particularly in a remote environment, which is now where we live, it's even more important to let people think their way to a solution and experiment their way to a solution. So to the extent that a leader can promote that and allow that, you know, and nurture that kind of learning and growth, you create an environment where you get a lot more engagement, you get a lot more mistakes, but they're ideally non-critical mistakes. And we learn as much from the mistakes as we do, or more from the mistakes as we do from the successes and create that environment that allows it to happen. And, And that's a leadership attitude. So I love that what you just said is we learn a lot more from our mistakes. So what's a leadership mistake that you made? along the way? And what did you learn from it? Well, it's when I first got out of the military and I was working in industry and I was working in a unionized environment. And it's a very different environment (laughs) in an industrial plant. And there's a very much us and them attitude. And you're encouraged through the culture 
to maintain that. It's us and it's them, right? And the workers are the enemy. And you as the leader are, you just tell them what to do and they're going to do it. And I made significant mistakes. What I realized, it didn't take me very long because I, I, I like to think I'm a little bit smart, was that in that kind of environment, the workers can outlast any ineffective leader, right? So I'm in a situation now where I'm supposed to be getting things done in a company. And I'm dealing with an established team that's already there and you parachute it in to work with them or tell them what to do, right? In that environment and not really taking the time to know them, to understand them, to understand that they're human beings leads you into that us and them mentality and this machine paradigm of the way an organization works and its cogs in the wheel and everything else. And we, you know, doing everything the way I was supposed to do it resulted in productivity losses. It results in more safety issues. It resulted in quality issues. And so I'm failing as a leader by being the leader that the organization expected me to be. And it's okay so you take a step back. So how do we change this? And again, it's going back and saying, okay, well, you guys know what you're doing. So how do we make it so it's easier? How do I help you do what you already know how to do? Now, I was going to go back to that whole, you know, servant leadership mindset, which is difficult within the context of a collective agreement. And certainly it's difficult in the context of, a, of, of an organization where the other leadership expects you to act a certain way. But all of a sudden you start seeing results. And so, and I was failing miserably until I said, well, wait a minute, right? Like step back from the, why is this happening? And we always maintain, you know, there's only four reasons why someone doesn't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And all of them are management's problem. And they don't know they're supposed to do it. That's your fault. They don't know how to do it. Ultimately, that's your fault because you assign them work they're not capable of doing. They know how to do it. They know they're supposed to do it. But something in the environment or the way the work's organized or whatever is preventing them from doing it, that's your problem. You're the manager. Or they don't want to do it. Ultimately, that's your problem too. Right? You're the manager. <laughs> so all of those are management problems, leadership problems. And so how do you, recognizing that if things aren't going the way they're going, you know, look in the mirror. What can I do differently? How can I help them to do? Because in the end, I have to believe everybody wants to do good work. So what did you do? We're on the edge of our seats. What I did was buck the prevailing culture in the organization and start doing things differently. I was fortunate in that I was working night shifts. And on a night shift, there's no senior management around to tell you what you can't do, right? And there's also no one from the union executive there to make sure that, you know, as well. So when you work in that kind of environment, you can, you know, you're a little bit of a black ops cell and you can do things, a little skunk worky things that no one else notices, except they start seeing the results and they go, well, what's going on on night shift? And so eventually we got other people to change the way they were doing things on other shifts. So what did you do? What did you do on the night shift in your skunk works? First thing I did was sit down, you know, and I came in, I admitted I was an idiot and sat down with the guys and said, you know, okay, so I hate you. You hate me. That's fine. We're in this together. How are we going to make this work? What does it take? And how did people respond? That must have been so unusual for those workers. It was. It was, it was scary as hell. And I obviously, with a great degree of skepticism, you get the industrial relations that you deserve. But you have to demonstrate it. You build trust by giving trust. And you demonstrate that I'm actually serious about this. I'm going to do things and things are going to go wrong. And none of you guys are going to get blamed for it. I'm going to get blamed for it. And I'm going to protect you from this stuff because that's my job. My job is to make your job easy. I think it was Peter Drucker that said that most of what we call management are all the things we put in the way of people getting their job done. And there's more than a grain of truth to that. 
<laughs> so how do we prevent that from happening? Somehow there is this prevailing belief, particularly as organizations get larger, that the best thing we can do is further subdivide roles and further segregate aspects of different jobs. And I know that to a certain extent, it makes sense. But I was listening to a podcast recently and someone said, you know, if you think about the beginning of the industrial age, why did we need managers that were so directive? Because most people in the workforce were illiterate. They didn't read and they didn't write. And so we forget that our workforce often, let's say many, many leaders, many of us don't ever stop to think about that. We have a perfectly literate or largely literate workforce, capable, well-schooled, able to learn. Somehow we do just take away their humanity piece by piece with the infrastructures that we build. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think if the, again, I'll go back to the Yoda of management consultants, Peter Drucker. And he talked about how do you kill a knowledge worker, a young knowledge worker? You put them in an environment that's strictly controlled, but doesn't give them room to think. And so you've got so many organizations where the structure of the organization is designed to support the lowest common denominator, but you're hiring people who are actually far more capable than that and then putting them into a structure that doesn't allow them to use all of their skill. And we've actually looked at, if you look at the Gallup Q12 studies that come out every year, the correlation between levels of workforce engagement and age and education, and the least engaged are new undergrads. That's not because they're young undergrads. It's because they've got skills. And if you look at the, and we actually did this as a sidebar project once, we pulled a bunch of job descriptions for entry-level positions, mostly white collar, and analyzed those to extract what the actual competencies were that they were looking for in these jobs built those profiles and went, holy crap, these guys are looking for some pretty talented entry-level people. And then we went and looked at what the job environment was in those organizations and found out that they were hiring highly competent people or, or more competent people, but then putting them into a structure where because they were new, they were treated as though they didn't have any skill in all cases, not like obviously there are places where they need to gain skill and experience. But they were put into, the, and then you'll work your way up to where we can trust you now. And in many cases, they had more skills than the people who were supervising them. So you got to listen really carefully. You got to be open to it and recognize that there's skills around you. Listen and be vulnerable to it. And I don't have the answers, right? So that the story that you had in that union environment, I think that sounds very eye-opening. I can imagine that that was quite a, it was a bit of a shock for you. And it was a hard situation, which you turned around. Well, you know, I would say, well, I used to come home from work and I hated my job, right? I'd, you know, I'd cry myself to sleep, not literally, but, you know, because it was really tough. It was stressful, right? It's hard to be hated. It's hard to be hated. What else was, I mean, you were expecting things of yourself in that moment that were unrealistic. What were you expecting? Well, I mean, I was, again, I'd been an officer in the military. I knew how to lead things, not in that kind of an environment. And I was expecting results because I was used to getting them. I was expecting a certain degree of, even though we ran our units a little bit different, I was expecting a certain degree of respect and deference, which wasn't there, right? Because I was just this new guy, right? And we can uh, outlast what, that guy too. Exactly. So what have you learned about yourself that has helped you change in the ways that you interact with others? I think, and I mean, I've gone through this, re, you know, over the last few years, trying to manage this three-headed monster. 
And I think the biggest thing is recognizing that it's sometimes frustrating. But the biggest thing for me is the step back, that break, and you recognize that they're not doing this just to be difficult. Everybody's driven by their own motivations. Everybody's got their own backstory. And I think for me, it's been taking that step back more often and saying, okay, so where's the common ground here? What are we trying to achieve together, right? And then how do we make that work, right? And and, and it's a business partnership's a lot like a marriage, right? And in some cases, harder to dissolve. And we're in this together. We're in this for the long haul. How do we make this work? And being open, more open to accepting those other other points of view and not being as focused as I may have been when it was just me. And so learning to accept that, learning to anytime there's a challenge, ask, well, why? Why is that challenge there? Because if it was as blindingly obvious to them as it was to me, then this this challenge wouldn't exist. So clearly there's other information that I don't have that they have. Let's find out what that is. And being patient enough to learning to be patient enough, I guess, to take the time to find that stuff out. And we're, I think a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs are used to, well, I've made a decision, let's go. And that works when it's just you most of the time. Well, it works or it doesn't. Well, yeah, you'll find out pretty quick, right? But the thing is that there are a few instances, a few things where it's immediate action required and, you know, let's go do what I say. Those instances are actually very, very small. Recognizing that is a big step forward for a leader that, you know, there are a few of those hills to die for. And then there's everything else, right? And the spring-loaded reaction to, well, we must do it this way because is almost always not the best solution, even though it might be the most expedient. I mean, it's such a good lesson and it, of course, makes sense. I just am wondering as we're talking, Jeff, is there anything we could have said to 28-year-old Jeff that would have helped him learn something faster? Like, could we offer something that would have, is there anything you can think of? I mean, I, I'm looking back at 28-year-old Jeff and going, no, you couldn't teach that idiot anything. But I think if someone had said, if future me had stepped back and found past me and said, like, look, dude, get over yourself, recognize that you have a job to play, a role to play here, but it's not all the roles to play. And those people are just as important, in fact, more important than you are. And learn to, you know, open yourself up to those other opinions and get over yourself. For me, I think that would have been a very useful lesson to learn earlier. And I learned it over time, but it would have been, I'd like to think I would have been open to it if future me had showed up and told me that. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Sometimes you just got to learn from the school of hard knocks. I think I read, or maybe you shared a story with me at one time about how it is that you came to view the frontline workers as the most important part of an organization. I wonder if you could share that story. When I was going through basic training as an officer, we went to the training school and the sergeant who was in charge in in, in our platoon was a crusty old sergeant who had been a sergeant a few times in his career. You know, and he was in the last six months of his career. He had been in the military since the Korean War. And so this is in the early 80s, so 30 plus years. And the last thing they made him do was try and teach us how to be officers. And at the time, I was going to be in the combat arms. And eventually, for whatever reason, I wound up in the Air Force, but I was going to be in the combat arms. So at the, and when we graduated, we did what all good military people do. We went to the mess and we started solving all the world's problems over a few beers. 
And this sergeant who, you know, he took us all aside, all the guys that were going into the combat arms, because he was an infantry sergeant. And he brought us all aside and said, look, guys, all this stuff, you know, that we've been teaching you, yeah, it's all good stuff, right? But here's the thing you need to recognize. You're standing in front of a bunch of trained professional killers with loaded guns. And the only reason that you're still alive is because they feel safer with you than without you. Don't ever forget that. I don't think I've heard that story before, but that's a great story. That's a great story. I mean, I, clearly, I remember it like it was yesterday, and it was like uh, almost 40 years ago now. Right? And that changes you. You realize that's what's at stake, right? We've seen so many other examples where it's the individuals at the front line who drive success. If you run a car plant, it's not the executives that drive value. It's the people who are delivering the product, building the product that your customers are looking for. If you're in a retail environment, it's your frontline customer-facing staff are the most important people. And yet they're the least appreciated, lowest paid, lowest trained, most expendable. You know, I spoke to a guy a few years ago who was a doctor running a trauma center down in Arizona. And they had done lean healthcare and all this other stuff because, you know, in a profit-driven healthcare environment, that matters, right? Throughput matters. Not so much in Canada, but in the States, it's a deal, right? It's a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. So they were looking at where's the bottleneck? How do I get more people through my trauma ward? And when they finished doing the analysis, the answer wasn't, well, we need more doctors. We need more nurses. We need more anesthesiologists. We need more of this. It was janitors. Because if you bleed in my exam room, I can't use it again until it's sterilized. So the bottleneck in throughput in a trauma center was the lowest paid, least appreciated people. You know, and Who probably <laughs> didn't have a sense of their importance in the system. Of course not. That's a little heartbreaking. So that's a good segue. So the title of this podcast is To Lead is Human. And I like to ask each guest, what does that mean to you as a leader? I think, and I go back to my thing about process over, you know, people over process. Organizations are not machines. They're not. And we have a machine paradigm for the way organizations run based out of the industrial revolution that no longer works. Organizations are collections of people, individuals, and they're organic. The dynamics change all the time. As a leader, you must lead people. You must lead human beings. Human beings are led by other human beings, not by machines. And to remind yourself of that every single day, what a privilege it is to be in a position to help people be successful, right? And by extension, make our organization successful because our organization is an organism. It's living, it's breathing, it's changing. It has good days and bad days. <laughs> That's a very human way of looking at it. And to accept the privilege, the honor of being able to help people be successful. And that's the goal of leadership. That's the joy of leadership. That's the essence of why we become leaders, whether we realize it at the beginning, you know, when we're 23 years old or not. <laughs> I can't think of a better place to wrap this up. So there's probably nothing more powerful than what you just said. An enormous big thank you to Jeff Griffiths for this conversation today. Jeff, where can listeners find out more about you and the work that you do if they're interested to track you down? You can find me via our website, which is workforcestrat.com, and find out more about what we're doing. We're actually going through some big revamps now and launching some new stuff in the near future. So stay tuned. Great. Thank you so much, Jeff, for joining me today. 
Anything else you want to say? No, I just thank you for having me. It's been fun. And uh, like, you know, as you said, I mean, we don't get the chance nearly often enough to have these kinds of conversations and I miss them. Please keep listening as I share some next steps you might take in your leadership journey. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. I love that Jeff describes his view of the primary job of a leader as not to tell people what they should do, but to cultivate a work environment where they can easily do what they're already good at and where they have many chances to get good at more things. As a young leader, he was really surprised that he couldn't just give directions and expect his team to happily follow along, especially when they were more experienced than he was at certain parts of their jobs. Jeff's entrepreneurial experience in these more hard-nosed environments forced him to embrace his humility, as well as to learn the value of working with constrained resources. What he discovered is that the people on his team regularly surprised him with the latent capabilities they brought into the company, meaning skills he didn't know they had, but they could use to really help accelerate growth. If you're an entrepreneur who's bringing in experienced leaders to help scale your organization, there's a special lesson for you here. You'll want to practice Jeff's balancing act of ensuring the team is aligned on the direction with standing out of their way so the leaders you've brought in can do what you hired them for. Bring in expertise that you lack and help the organization grow in that way. If you're ready to take a page from Jeff's leadership book, here's one way you can get started. First, identify someone on your team. Could be someone that works for you or could be another executive that isn't doing what you think they're supposed to do. And recognize that this is on you as the leader. And here are the four steps you should work through together. First, make sure they understand what's expected of them in their role. And do it in concrete ways where the metrics are really clear and agreed to. Second, make sure they know how to do what's expected. Observe, guide, coach, whatever is appropriate so that you find out that they indeed do have the skills and capabilities that they will need to be successful. Third, talk with them and find out what is getting in the way of them doing what they're supposed to do in the organization and then remove that problem. We're always looking for bottlenecks in the business and that's anything that slows down progress that we don't need to have in place. And last, make sure that this person wants to do what's expected of them. That might be a bit harder conversation, but I think if you just ask, you'll find out that this conversation or this series of conversations will turn this work environment around from people feeling like they're just a cog in the machine of the business to people feeling truly valued as a person in the company and that you care what they're bringing to the organization. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead is Human. Thanks so much for joining us again today. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. 
To Lead is Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Govertson assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production was provided by Post Office Sound. I'd hate for you to miss any upcoming episodes, so please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show and learned something, please leave us a starred review and tell your colleagues about us. It really helps us spread the word about how to better lead as a full human being. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on To Lead is Human. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Muskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making Making It. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it, to me, really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like, for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts, no shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing, and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.